Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that, that you are indeed reigning. We thank you that what we perceive and see with our eyes is not the full picture of reality. There are things on a spiritual level going on behind the scenes that we don't always see. But in your great care for your people, you've given us to a certain degree some insights in terms of the spiritual battle that is going on behind the scenes. Lord, I pray you would help us to understand your word, that we would know the blessing that comes from hearing it and understanding it and from putting it into practice as you have promised with this book. So Lord, be with us. Change us, transform us and help us to see something more of your wonder and glory and what you have done for us in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. It's good to be back again. Last week was the pulpit swap. Um, I was over at the Christian Reformed Church and I believe, not I believe, I know Josh Rowe was here um, last week because the Reformed Church starts earlier. I actually got here just as the service finished it. But when I preached a couple of weeks ago, I used, started with the opening illustration that whenever you're going on a family car trip, there's one question that parents don't want to hear. But there are other questions that can be known to test the patience of parents. And there's one in particular that I want to think about. And it's not so much a question, but a cycle or a series of questions that usually comes to its final answer of because it just is or because I told you so. I don't think I need to tell you what that question is. It's why. Now why in and of itself isn't a bad question. That's that's kind of how we learn stuff. It's probably the patience of the parents get tested when it gets repeated, not so much because they want to know why, but because they realise it's fun and they can see that you're getting annoyed with the process. But even as a Christian, when we understand that God is sovereign, he's the greatest power and authority is over all things, there are things that we look around and see in this world that we could be very easy inclined to say, why? Why would there be Christians who have the same Bible as all of us, yet they believe things aren't in there how is it that can jesus can be said to be reigning over all things and you look around and think this world's a mess how is it that jesus can be reigning over all things yet in certain parts of the world christians are so fiercely persecuted and even killed for their faith these chapters which we look at this morning help answer and understand some of these whys. But before we even look at any of the content of Revelation, remind ourselves of something that Paul said about the nature of the spiritual battle that we're in. He says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He says, our biggest battle isn't a battle of individual personalities or people. It's a spiritual battle. Now, whenever one talks about spiritual warfare in any sense, there can be two 
equally damaging errors to fall into. One to kind of make it so there's nothing, that Satan and his demons are doing nothing in this world, it's don't even give it a thought. That is not a good state of ignorance to be in. But then there's the opposite end of the spectrum to kind of constantly live in fear that everything Satan's behind. And that's not a good place to be either. Remember how Paul said we are to stand firm in our spiritual battle? He says, stand firm. And then at the end he says, having done all, stand firm. And he talks about this armour of God, which majority is protective. Salvation, faith, the only actual attacking weapon is the word of God itself. But how does John say that the believers conquer? He says they have conquered by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they have loved, not loved their lives even unto death. Remember how John spoke as he wrote and he began to write this letter? He says, I am your partner in three things, in trouble, in kingdom, and patient endurance. Now when you saw the title to this sermon, you probably thought, that kind of doesn't make much sense. Beasts, false prophets, dragons, 666, and hope. They kind of stand at contrast, all these wicked and evil things, and then alongside is hope. But it's actually quite fitting that there is a distinct contrast because when we work our way through these three chapters, we see that humanity, every single one of us, fits into one of two categories. There is no other categories. Either those who worship the Lamb, who are marked as His, who belong to Him, or those, whether they are aware of it or not, who worship the beast and marked as His and belong to Him. There's not a single person who belongs in any other grey, middle, other category. And as it speaks about these two different categories of people, it describes their two different experiences their two different worldviews and the experiences of how they differ both not only in this world but in the age to come. Now in previous weeks we've seen these sevenfold descriptions of God's judgment all coming to that final climax of the return of Christ and his final judgment. We spoke about the seven seals, seven trumpets. Next week we'll be looking at the seven bowl judgments. But today we have something that's not specifically numbered in terms of sevens. But we see what some describe as seven symbolic histories where it seems to focus on either individuals or groups and sees the world through their perspective and how they affect the world in which we live in. There is a woman, a dragon, a beast, a false prophet, 144,000 angelic proclaimers who are not going to walk 500 miles and the son of man. So the first one we're introduced to is this woman, a light-bearing woman. Now if you read verse 5 of chapter 12, you hear how this woman gives birth to a son who will rule all of the nations. And you could easily come to the presumption that this woman must be Mary herself. Now, you'd be right to think that this includes Mary, 
but it would be far too narrow to say this is Mary alone, particularly the way in which it is described throughout this chapter. As a matter of fact, I'd say it could go right back to the original garden where it was spoken about a woman who, through whom whose seed would crush the serpent. That same one who the promises came through Abraham, that through his seed all nations would be blessed. In that sense, it's speaking of the corporately of all of the people of God. And through the people of God and through this lineage comes the one who's first given the attention, the birth of the Messiah. And it says, And this dragon, who we see in verse 9, is Satan, stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule over the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. We see it was in the plan of Satan. As this child, Jesus Christ, came into the world, he's like, I want to annihilate him. So when you read through Matthew chapter 2 and you see how Herod seemed to have had a plan to kill all male children two years and under, we're given this insight into the background that it was actually Satan who was behind that, who was working through Herod. And despite Satan's plan, it didn't come to fruition. Jesus rose victorious from the grave and is seated at the right hand of God on his throne. Then the women, it says, God's people, were nourished for 1260 days in the wilderness. A bit weird. We've already seen it throughout Revelation. It also comes up in the book of Daniel. These three different time references of either 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, time, times, and times, and half a time. All speaking of this three and a half years. Now, often the Bible speaks of seven-year increments of being a fullness and a completion. But here's speaking of a three and a half years, which in Daniel is speaking about a time of trouble, but also that it never comes to its full fruition of seven, speaking of a time which will be cut short as Jesus Christ returns. This world of turmoil that we live in, that Jesus is described between his first coming and his second coming, is this period of time. And God provides and he nourishes his people in the middle of all of this trouble, which we see again in verse 14. Secondly, we have a dragon. Verse 9 tells us very specifically this dragon is Satan himself, who's engaging with Michael, the archangel, and is thrown from heaven. Now, while it is very true to say that Satan did rebel before the creation, presumably before the creation, This is not describing him being kicked out of heaven at that point in time, although that did take place. Look at the emphasis here that is in the context of verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Now, Satan is regularly described as being the accuser of the brothers, the one who comes before God and accuses us. 
But here in connection with Jesus Christ has come and his kingdom has come, now that he has dealt with in all of its entirety our sin, the accusations of Satan, they come to nothing. There's no place for him. There's no place for someone to make accusations against God's people because God can just close his ears and say, paid, paid, paid. Jesus done that. And as he's flung to the earth, he turns his oppositions to God's people in two different ways. False teaching and persecution. Look there in verse 15, it speaks about how a flood will come from his mouth. Unusual description from a dragon, you usually think fire. They will sweep, trying to sweep the woman away. Things that come from his mouth, from words. It's the language Paul uses in Ephesians 4.14, saying don't be tossed around by every wave or every wind of doctrine that comes your way. If Satan can't take God's children away from God, he'd love to distract them. He'd love to take their eyes off Christ and render them ineffective in this world. Have you ever noticed? False teaching always takes the attention off Jesus and who he is. It becomes the next new and exciting thing and everything's, everyone's excited about that. And Jesus kind of slowly and gradually gets pushed off into the background. Throughout all of church history, we've seen weird and wonderful false teachers come in, sometimes persuading many. Even in our own day, we see this happening. Tension is taken off Jesus to something new, novel, or just something that just appeals to our natural fleshly instincts. And so people go for it. In my opinion, I think it's actually extremely rare where there is false teaching that the person who is providing the false teaching actually believes that they are intentionally deceiving people. My experience is everybody who's caught up in false teaching is absolutely convinced in and of themselves that they are doing what is right in the sight of God and in accordance to his word. whether it be a cult, whether it just be a strange idea that comes into Christian circles, Satan works through people to deceive, to take people's eyes off Christ. And if you can't fool them with error, then they'll happily persecute. See, damage, destruction and trouble come upon God's people. So why... Do we see Christians be fooled or people fall into false teaching? Why do we see Christians persecuted? God said, this is what's going to happen. This is part of the overall plan that God has been gracious enough to give us that insight. Then there's a beast. Probably the most controversial, disputed part of the section we're looking at today. Are we talking about an individual, an organisation, a national leader, a church, a movement. We're talking about something now, past or future. You've probably all heard countless theories. Certainly back in the 40s, and there was a lot of people saying, well, clearly this is Hitler. 
Those who are from a Reformed church background of any form, Presbyterian, you've seen all the historic creeds, they'll all associate this with the Roman Catholic Church or the Pope. See, people associate it with the United Nations or an Antichrist. You'll notice during the week, those who are on the Facebook group, I put up a poll saying, which books of the Bible don't include the word Antichrist? There's five references in the whole Bible that say the word Antichrist. Four of them in 1 John. No one voted for that one. Good. Well done. You've been listening. One of them is in 2 John. Zero in Revelation. That's not to say that he's not described. It's to say that that term specifically is not used anywhere in the book of Revelation. But what does the text say this beast will be like? Well, actually described in a way which is kind of like a satanic or an evil counterfeit version of Jesus. Look at some of the things that are said about him. He'll have names written on him. When you get to Revelation chapter 19, which Samuel will be preaching in a few weeks, you'll see how Jesus comes and he's got honourable names written on him. Jesus who came with the full authority of God the Father. Here we have the beast given the authority from the throne and the dragon. They worship this beast saying, who is like this beast? That's the same wording we see in a lot of the Old Testament prophets. Who is like our God? He's given authority over every tribe, tongue and nation. That's a pretty obvious connection between the two. And who received a mortal wound but was healed. Almost like a, a mockery or a parody of Jesus' resurrection. So between the dragon, the beast and the false prophet, you've almost got a counterfeit unholy trinity. So what does he do according to the passage? He blasphemes God through false teaching. He persecutes and he kills Christians. So who is he or it? I don't think it's a one-time individual or an organisation. Those original hearers who heard it probably would have made a strong association with Nero, not only because of his persecution of Christians, But Nero got to a stage where he was actually announced as being a public enemy of Rome and people were coming to collect him. And he got word of it and he stabbed himself in the neck, took his own life, but there were rumours that were circulating that he was coming back. And that would have been the image that his regional hearers would have first heard. Now I'm not saying it's specifically just that one individual, but characteristic of many individuals Nations, leaders throughout all of this age who would set themselves up in a way that it takes away the power which belongs to Christ, trying to make such claims of themselves, opposing Christians. The way he's described with images of a leopard, bear and a lion is the exact same language used back in Daniel chapter 7 where four beasts come out of the water, just like this beast comes out of the water. But in Daniel 7, it was referring to four different kingdoms that would come, it would set themselves up as an authority who would oppress and oppose God's people. But here he he puts them all together as one beast, representative of all of those characteristics. So who's the beast? Well, anyone, anything, any group in the organisation empowered by Satan 
to persecute God's people, to set themselves up as an ultimate authority in the place of Christ. It could have been included the Roman emperors, people like Hitler, North Korea, ISIS, just to name a few of some manifestations of what that would look like. It answers the questions of why. Why do we see nations where we have great such persecution against Christians? Well, we're told this is part of the plan. But rather than cause us to panic or to start fearing, going to spiral, worrying that God's not in control, we hear these words in verses 9 to 10. If anyone has an ear, yeah, we do, good, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain by the sword, to the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now, they're not words that are comfortable to hear. He's like, you know what? It's actually been appointed that some will get slain for, the, for their relationship with Christ. And that's what'll happen. if that's what's been appointed, that's what will happen. But he says, here's a call for the endurance of the faith of the saints. That theme throughout the book of Revelation, stay faithful. Your part is in patient endurance. You belong to the one who has all authority, to the one who conquers, who will bless you in all eternity. You will see all sorts of opposition in this world, but it can never take away the riches you have in Christ. There is a false prophet in verses 11 to 18. It's also described as being a beast which came from the earth, but he's specifically identified as a false prophet in chapter 16, 13, 19, 20 and 2010. Again, we see something of this evil parody, this counterfeit. He causes people, appoints them to, to worship the beast. He does great signs and wonders, just like is in the coming of the Spirit in the book of Acts. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth. Now, that's not just a title of people who live on the earth. Throughout the book of Revelation, those who dwell on the earth is a title for those who belong to this earthly system. He deceives those who are not in Christ to place their trust in something else so that they will never come to Christ. And amongst the signs he will do is to cause them to make an image of the beast and make it look like it can speak. Even in history from the first century, there were signs of people doing trickery by sleight of hand to make it look like idols that had been made with their hands could actually talk. Unfortunately, they didn't have YouTube, so we've only got written documentation, but I'd be interested to know what or how what they did. But then the controversial bit, the bit, I remember every time I did things in prison, this would come up all the time again who would place a mark on the right hand or on the forehead so people may no longer buy or sell. The mark of the beast. Now, this is probably going to upset some people. I don't believe that's a microchip in someone's hand. I don't think it's a tattoo of 666 across your head. As we're about to see, this is put back to back with those who are marked by God that's saying they have his name on their forehead and the name of the lamb on their forehead, but 
I don't know a single person who believes that Christians are going to have the name of God or the name of Jesus tattooed on their forehead. I'm aware that there are companies already today who do implant chips in the, in the hands of their staff. I don't think that's the mark of the beast. I think that's the mark of stupidity. It's again another evil counterfeit version of something which God does, who marks the people as his own. That we see in the immediate passage which follows after in verse chapter 14. It is a mark that you belong to someone. People are either marked as belonging to the beast or marked as belonging to Jesus Christ. Not a physical mark, but it's a way of identifying those who are his and those who belong to Christ. But what he does in through his opposition to Christians is hinder them in their business and commerce. We already saw that in the first century that if people didn't bow down to an image of the emperor, they couldn't effectively trade. So there was immediate implications for them in their time. There have been other times, and there probably are times right now around the world, where Christians are dramatically disadvantaged simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. We've seen things even in our own country where people's business opportunities or their careers have been cut short or hindered simply because of their faith in Christ. And just when you thought it couldn't get any weirder or controversial, verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Is he giving us a mathematical challenge? So he says, if you have wisdom, calculate the number of the beast, his number is man, 666. Should we be pulling out our calculators? There's certainly some who think so. There's a practice called gematria, where it kind of assigns letters to a numerical value, and so every word has a numerical value. There's different systems of who do it. And some see this as a challenge. What names add up to 666? Now, I've got to admit, throughout the week I got a little bit sidetracked, and I started putting in my own name and other people. I couldn't get anyone in our church to come up with it just for a gag. But if I did, I probably wouldn't name them from the front just in case. They got I think I got 646, so I got really close. But you'll see there are ways of writing Emperor Nero that will come to that number. You'll see the same thing comes there of, of Hitler. There's a lot of different ways of doing Barack Obama that people love to doing. You can also get potatoes. <laughs> so if you don't like potatoes, feel free to take that as your, your Bible verse against potatoes. I don't think it's meant to give us maths to describe who or to identify a person or an individual or a group. It's a description of what they're like. God has described a 777. This beast falls short in every single possible way. It's the number of man, of man's attempts to emulate, but always falling short. A group, individual, power, nation, a movement, enabled by Satan, 
to oppose God's people and specifically to hinder them to be able to commerce, to fool people with signs and wonders that are false, counterfeit versions of what God has done through his spirit. Just like the first beast, there may be a final climactic expression of it. But what you'll notice throughout both of those descriptions, you'll see regularly, it was allowed, it was given. These things were given and allowed through the permissive will of God in his plans. We've got the 144,000, we've spoken about this a number of times, so I won't keep returning back to it as collectively of God's people of all time, marked as his by his spirit, whose lives are characterised by purity, who follow the Lamb, who having God's name written on their head is not a tattoo, but as those who are marked and belonging to him. Then we've got three angelic proclaimers. The first one who proclaims the gospel to all those who dwell on the earth. Remember when I made that distinction, those who dwell on the earth, a reference to those who are outside of Christ. Here the gospel is presented to those, because they're the ones who need the gospel, from all nations, specifically telling them to return to the God who created them, who has given them life, and who is the judge who will come. A second angel announces that Babylon has fallen. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Right back to Genesis 11, Babel or Babylon has been representative of man's attempts to build power and authority for themselves in opposition, proud independence against God. It's been destroyed. All human efforts, all powers that would set themselves up as an alternative of something to trust in other than Christ have been dealt a deadly blow, the cross of Christ, and when he returns will all be brought to nothing. Why would you pursue anything else? Knowing it's going to be brought to absolutely nothing. Then there's a third angel which gives probably one of the most graphic descriptions of the judgment of the wicked. It kind of stands as a, a final warning before people. It says, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of his holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. It's probably not one you're going to put up on your wall at home, is it? It's not really inspirational. It's a very graphic picture of God's wrath going out against sinners. A lot of Christians aren't comfortable with verses like this. And I don't think we should be comfortable with them in one sense. Not because we're embarrassed about God's nature being described in this way. But how could any of us be comfortable knowing that there are thousands, millions of people around us for whom this describes their eternal reality? How could you be comfortable knowing that this could describe people we know and love? 
Remember, there's two camps of people. There's either eternal rewards and blessing in the presence of God or there's eternal punishment. There's, there's no middle ground. But it doesn't have to be this end for anybody. This pouring out of God's wrath is not the first pouring out of God's wrath we read in the Bible. As Jesus Christ hung on that cross, he bore the full wrath of God against sin. And anyone who turns to him and trusts in him knows that he has been my substitute. He has borne the punishment I deserve to be. I don't need to bear what is described here if my faith and my trust is in Christ. People still struggle there. Christians come to different interpretations because they can't deal with the idea that people are being punished forever. They think, that's a long time. We only live for 70 or 80 years. How much sin can we do? So some will go to the extent of saying, well, eternal punishment just means when you die, you don't get any of God's good stuff, you just cease to exist. That's not the way the Bible describes it. Or some will say, well, how about we do it now, if, it's, if your life's only 70 to 80 years, how about we do something proportionate? Maybe they, they, they are physically punished for a certain amount of time and then they cease to exist and the eternal nature of it just means they never get that reversed. But at the end of Matthew chapter 25, this is the same way Jesus speaks. He, he uses the same word eternal. He says either eternal life or eternal punishment. Both are eternal. But from a justice point of view, think about in this world and the justice systems we have. People can get a double life sentence or a triple life sentence for one, one particular offence. How much more when we understand the nature of our rebellion against the God who's given us everything and we treat him with hostility and hatred? And while you might say, well, we only live 70 or 80 years... The Bible kind of describes that even after we die, we still live in a conscience hate of God. The crime that we see people getting double, triple life sentence is nothing. Sometimes we just have such a high view of man and such a low view of God and his perfections and his holiness. But this is a God who says he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He provided his son Jesus Christ because he wants people to come to him and be saved. But if this doesn't light a fire in your belly for those around you who don't know Jesus, I don't know what will. I often use like the medical example. If you knew how to cure for something, you would do it. You wouldn't say, oh, there's people who are better at it than I am. After all, The power of God for salvation is his gospel, not your personality, your ability. But after some of the rather horrific things that have been described, you see these words. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours, for their deeds follow them. 
And the message is, it's a blessed thing to die if you belong to Christ. We live in a world that is marked by trouble. A trouble which will be, in its end, brought to complete justice. But when we go to see him face to face, there'll be no trouble. Just the fullness of God's blessings to enjoy him forever. The passage wraps up with that one last one. The Son of Man. One who's described coming with the clouds that we see from Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. But we see two reapings from the earth that comes from Joel 3.13. First, the Son of Man swings his sickle because it says the harvest is fully ripe. Throughout the Bible we see these descriptions that Jesus will not return until the full number have come in. There comes a time when he will swing his sickle and take those which are his. But there is also another angel who is described as having authority over fire. He swings his. And there's a place into the great rind press of the wrath of God. This is the third description we've seen in the book of Revelation of the consequences of Jesus' final return. We see everyone's in one of two categories. They either belong to the, to the Lamb, to Jesus Christ, who is our substitute, who rescues us from his wrath. But we belong to the beast and we are on a course due to experience the wrath for ourselves that we don't have to. So what? Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God at his ascension and resurrection he is reigning and this book we're reading the revelation of Jesus Christ is both a revelation from Jesus Christ to us but about Jesus Christ for us describes what the life in between his first and second coming will be like but it also gives us that insight to peel back to see the spiritual reality that is behind some of the wicked and evil things that we see happening in this world, all of which will be brought to nothing at the return of Christ. And throughout it we see this is a call to faithful endurance. Don't be alarmed when you see stuff like this. Jesus said that same thing himself in Matthew 24. Don't be alarmed. These things must take place supposed to happen but no matter how tough things get they will never triumph over you even if the persecution got to such a place as it is in some nations already today where your own life is taken it's even that to die as as a child of God is victory remember you conquer through the blood of the lamb through patient endurance. We get to experience the fullness of the salvation that we've entered into. We go to be with the Lamb, the one we worship, the one we marked as His. The one who, Paul says to the Colossian church, has already made a public spectacle of all rule and power and authority by His death on the cross. And the one who will return and will bring absolutely everything that sets itself up in opposition to him, bringing it to complete destruction and ruin. 
But while there was so much talk about judgment and trouble, in these last few verses of our reading from chapter 15, we see the saints sing in praise, and it appears Josh actually preached on part of Moses' song last week. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of the glass with halves of God in their hands, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Even with all of these things that have been described, the saints can say, you are almighty. Great and amazing are all of your deeds. There is trouble in this world. There are things which we ask why. Now God is good enough to give us some of these insights of why the world is in the mess in which it is. That it's not a sign that things are out of control, but it's a sign that things that Jesus said would take place and are a sign that remind us that he's coming again, that we will look forward to him, to seeing his return, when he will work out his perfect justice, where either we will say, blessed is the lamb, my saviour, redeemer, who rescued me from the wrath that is to come. Or it will be time where it's described with weeping and gnashing of teeth where we will have to bear the consequences for our own sin and rebellion ourselves. But you know what? You don't have to. Jesus Christ has died in our place. You can come to know him. You can escape from the things that we've had described this morning. We're going to close in prayer and we're going to share around the Lord's table in a moment. Heavenly Father, we are very aware how much of a hard passage this is to read to explain to apply yet we don't want to shirk from a single word of it because all of your word is good all of your character all of your ways are good you warn us of such dire things because you want something better for us and you provided that something better in Jesus Christ who has borne the wrath against sin, that all who would come to him might not only just escape from that wrath for themselves, but can be called children and sons of God. To know you personally, to be indwelt by your very Holy Spirit and to live forever and eternity with you, with all of your wonderful blessings. Thank you for your goodness. Give us a deep grief and loss for those who don't know you and give us a love that looks for opportunities, not to force them, but Lord, that we would pray and ask that you would give us those opportunities to explain of what you've done in Christ to deal with our sin. And Lord, we are dependent not upon our methods, but upon your Holy Spirit to convict and change people, to point them to Jesus. And we may ask that you would do that in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.